Welcome to the teaching ministry at Crothers Creek Community Church. Well, good morning, C4 family. We're really glad that you're here this morning, and like we say every week, a huge hey to our online audience, wherever you might be today. Well, like Joanna just prayed, we're now continuing in our series in Romans, and so if you've got your Bible, open them up or turn them on to Romans chapter 2, as we're going to continue in our series called Back to Basics. As I was preparing this week, I came across a very interesting and an old story that I think sets the tone for our conversation as a community this morning. The Queen Mary was the largest ship ever to cross the oceans when it was launched in 1936. It's a long time ago now. For four decades and through one major world war, she served until she was retired and actually became a floating hotel and a museum in Long Beach, California. Now, during her conversion process into this hotel, her three massive smokestacks were taken off and the goal was to scrape them down and have them repainted. But then something something absolutely terrible happened. They took all three smokestacks off, they actually put them down on the docks, and in front of all the people's eyes, they crumbled into dust. They suddenly just literally disappeared. See, nothing was left of the three-quarter-inch steel plate that actually made up those smokestacks. All that remained, listen to this, was 30 coats of paint that had been applied over all those years. That's it. And when they put those 30 coats of paint down, they turned to dust. When I read that this week, I said, this is one of the best examples I've ever read about what Paul is going to confront us and he confronted the world with. What looks right on the outside doesn't matter if there's nothing going on in the inside. Jesus looked at the Pharisees, didn't he? And he says, you look so good. So right, so religious, but then he said, with prophetic action, you are nothing but a whitewashed tomb. You look right on the outside. Your painting looks amazing. Inside, there's nothing left. Paul writing to this community in Romans, in Rome, is about to say the same things. He's about to confront both those who follow Jesus and those that don't with the terrible thing that has plagued humanity since we left Eden. It's called moralism. Making sure that we think we're okay by what we do and what we look like and who we are and evolving into something we never were supposed to be. Something not with God. See, what we think reality is and what our reality is is two very different things. And like last week, Paul again is going to challenge us to see humanity's true state before the living God. Now we ended last week, if you were with us, with very difficult truth. It was really a universal indictment of all of us, all of humanity. Paul actually wrote words, when you really take them to heart, that violate what we hold so dear. He announced the most difficult of news, I said, that God's wrath is real. And it's upon anyone, anyone at all who's been touched by or participated in or lives in or through sin. The end of chapter 1, chapter 2, and part of 3, Paul says all of us as humans, good, bad, religious, non-religious, men, women, children, even babies, all of us are under the wrath of God. Paul says that the righteousness of God has been revealed in salvation, but the wrath of God is being revealed at the exact same time. Salvation, he wrote, and wrath are two sides of the gospel. You must have one so the other has power and effect. Here's a summary of what he said last week. God's angry displeasure is erupting as acts of human mistrust and wrongdoing and lying are accumulating. As people try to put a lid or shroud the truth of God, 
And so in summary, God said in effect, if that's what you want, that's what you're going to get. And yet the truth is, even we as Christians, as we hear God's view about ourselves or the world, which of course should divine reality because it is reality, many of us emotively do not accept God's assessment of us. I love this quote I found this week that said, it's very easy to get a non-Christian or a Christian to admit we're sinners, but it is almost impossible to get them to realize the gravity of sin itself. I mean, are these not the statements that are, are foundational to our culture, our families? Do not these ideas even roll around in our heads when pastors and others talk about sin? <laughs> but everyone's doing it. Or no one's perfect. Or I'm not that bad. I mean, John, come on, I'm not Hitler or, or Charles Manson. I'm not a pedophile. Now, okay, I'm not Mother Teresa and Billy Graham either. Listen, John, I'm just a good person. I'm somewhere in the in-between. History is full of these ideas, right? Even great thinkers started coining phrases like, to err is human, but to forgiveness is divine. Or here's one so expressing terrible cynicism. God will forgive, they wrote. It's his trade. See, at the heart of all of the above, what we are really saying to each other and God himself is that we are humans, and listen, we are obligated to sin. And then we're turning around and saying, as a culture and as individuals, and, and God, you're under moral obligation to forgive us. You have to do it. It's your job. And the truth is, for all of us, believers or not, when we mess up, many of us at the end of the day just still think, I'm just okay. I'm good. I'm not terrible. I'm not awful. I, I, I'm not hellbent. I'm just, mm. And see, this is what makes the conversation so unbelievably difficult today. It makes it hazy. See, it's, it, it's hard to talk about sin, wrath, and salvation if we do not see ourselves as heaven does. And if we do not see ourselves as heaven does, we're not just sort of dimly seeing. We're outright blind. One wrote these words, there's a broad middle category containing the masses of somewhat good yet somewhat bad people, and then there's the others yet to be determined. That's where we usually place ourselves, the author writes. Isn't it? Within that category, we mentally rank people in our order of observable goodness. Some are better than others. Now, clearly, think about this. Where do you think that measuring rod comes from? Now, be honest, they write. Remember, it's just you and God talking right now. Where is it? Well, if you guess correctly, it's you. It's self. When we're driving down the freeway, people who go slower than us are jerks and idiots. In other words, we won't say from the pulpit. Whoever drives faster than us is clearly a menace to society and safety. When people are asked all the time if they're going to heaven or hell, most will even say this, well, I'm not perfect and I've never killed anyone though, so I suppose I'm an okay or good person. Alcoholics look down at dope heads while drug addicts turn around and ridicule drunks. Even in prison, murderers, rapists, and thieves have no tolerance for child molesters and have no compunction to mistreat or even kill them. See, what Paul's about to say, almost all of us would agree with. Romans 2.2, 2, the judgment of God rightly falls on all who practice evil. We go right on. But then he's about to remind all of us today. That the same judgment we call down on others falls on us too. See, that's the part that makes us squirm, even as Christians. We all want justice for the world, but we each carry within us a standard of goodness or righteousness based on our perceived goodness. Furthermore, we will only tolerate, listen, we will only tolerate only as much evil in the world as we can accept within ourselves. 
When we feel resentment towards God for not eradicating evil in the world, we forget that eliminating evil would mean the end of every one of us sitting and standing here. So from now on, the author writes, let's just say what we really mean when we're really, really angry. Lord, get rid of all the evil in the world that's worse than what's inside of me. See, the judgment of God, Paul wrote, falls on every person because the standard of righteousness is not based on what we think. It's based on God himself. And that means we're all in trouble. And so in Romans chapter 2, Paul moves from condemning all of humanity to a specific group. He writes to a specific audience, the religious Jewish community of his day. And never forget that he was, for most of his life, the best, the brightest, the most religious of that community until he met Jesus. It's 22 years later, and he once again chooses to speak to his family, the ones he loves, his people. They need to know, he's writing, like the rest of the world, that they're under the wrath of God too, and they think they know the living God, and they don't. See, they would have read Romans 1 and shouted a huge amen. We're not doing that idle thing, they would have said. We're not sexually deviant. We're not coveting and doing all that garbage. We know God, and they hate the world, and uh, hate God, and they're all going to hell, and we're not, and we're just fine. And Paul would come along and say, actually, you're in more trouble than you think. Because actually, you know what God expects. And you're still saying no. One person recounted the mindset this way. Listen closely. We are about to see in Romans 2 the perfection of God's judgment in that even the most religious people don't fool God. Their paint job just doesn't match up. Just as millions of religious moralizers at this moment today think they're going to get by because they're good people and God must forgive them. Thousands upon thousands of Jews in Jesus' day and Paul's day thought the same way, but they took it a step farther. They believed that everyone else would be judged except the Jewish race. There's a common tradition held at the time that Abraham himself, the father of the Jewish race, actually sat at the gate of hell to keep all Jews out regardless of their deeds. Trypho the Jew, one great thinker, allegedly said these words too. They who are the seed of Abraham, according to the flesh, in any case, even if they be sinner or unbelieving or disobedient towards God, they shall share in God's eternal kingdom. Many Jews believed that they were immune from God's wrath simply because they were Jews. So you can imagine how a moralizing Jew would read the condemnation of the pagan world in Romans 1 and say, Go get him, God. It's about time you clean this up. But the self-righteous Jew never would have dreamed that he's in trouble too. He's actually blind to his actual condition like the rest of us. And so to Romans 2 we go. And basically Paul starts writing to an audience, which he was himself. You all think you're okay, right? You think you're better. I know you do. I was once one of you. You think you're more connected. You, you think you're more spiritual, but you're not. Paul is saying to the most observant, the most religious, the most moral, the most careful people, you also are guilty of suppressing that truth. You're guilty of trying to put the lid on too. And like the pagan world, you are without excuse. But I am about to tell you it is worse for you. Why? Because again, you actually have the written law and you still break it all the time. Romans 2.1 starts like this. You, therefore, have no excuse You who pass judgment on someone else for whatever point you judge the other, you're condemning yourself because you pass judgment, you're doing the same things. 
Therefore you, in Greek means, because of everything I've just said beforehand, it includes you too. And like everyone else, you're in worse shape because you know God and you have his law and you keep breaking it. Again, you have underestimated the loftiness of God's holiness and your own condition. You are self-sanctified, blind, falsely confident. You are unaware. I think it was Bruxy Cavey at the meeting house talking about hypocrisy who said one day that if this is what you know about what God expects of you and this is what you do with it, the gap in the middle is called hypocrisy. Think about that. Therefore you, Paul says. Now of course they, like us, would cry out, that's not fair. That's not true, Paul. That's not right. We don't steal. We don't commit adultery. We are obeying. But see, God looks way beyond actions or our, uh, or our appearance. We all know he looks at thoughts and motives. I mean, Jesus used the issue of adultery to bring this home, right in Matthew 5. You've heard it said, he said, do not commit adultery. And and many said, oh, I've never done that. But then he says, I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman or a man lustfully has already committed adultery within their hearts. Who among us listening right now? Who among us watching at this moment? Who among us here at C4 has not in emotion or in thought or in deed committed adultery? All of us married have done it. And that's only one of the Ten Commandments. And if you break one of God's law, you violate all of his laws. Why? Because the laws are not separate from God. They emanate from God. They are his character. They are divine DNA. You want the summary? If you break the law of God, you assault the author himself. Paul comes and says, you have no excuse. Verse 2, he says, now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things, it's just based on truth. God's wrath is also on those that think they represent God to the world. It's based on truth. It's based on the facts. Another wrote this with sort of biting insight. The secret hope of hypocrites is that God will somehow judge them by a standard lower than the perfect truth and righteousness of God. They know enough to recognize the wickedness of the heart, but they hope vainly that God will judge them in some same superficial way that other people judge. It says in verse 3, So when you, a mere person, pass judgment on them, that's the world, and yet you do the same things, do you think you'll escape God's judgment? The word suppose there is interesting in verse 3. It means to calculate or estimate. So when you're walking around, Paul says, and you're seeing all the crap in the world and the sin in the world, and you as a religious Jew think that by my works and by my heritage, I'm just fine, Paul says, you're wrong. I love how Eugene, uh, Eugene Peterson translated this in the message. You didn't think, did you? Just by pointing your finger at others, you would distract God from seeing all your misdoings and coming down on you hard? Or do you think that he's such just a nice God that he'd let you off the hook? Better think this one through from the beginning. God is kind, but he's not soft. In kindness, he takes us firmly by the hand, and his goal is to lead us into radical life change. Writing on the psychology of religious people that think that they are better off and safe with God because of what they look like and what they do versus what has been done for them. One author put it this way, see if it's you. The self-righteous moralizer is not only blind, but judgmental to the extreme. There is no one more censorious than such a person. No one. And by the way, they write, hell is going to be full of judgmental goody-goody people. There's another facet to the psyche of a self-righteous religionist. He wrongly thinks that he or she will escape judgment by taking God's side and condemning the world. They, They whisper prayers like this, Oh Lord, how terrible that was. 
Oh, Lord, they're sinning. Look at them. Oh, Lord, thank you so much. I've been saved and I'm just not like them. Do you think God is swayed by self-righteous accusations? The last characteristic of a religious moralizer is that they actually think that kindness and tolerance and patience of God is sort of like a divine stamp that God's just okay with them no matter what they do, even in secret, when they've forgotten that God is giving them space to repent. See, what Paul brings here is difficult because he's saying no matter how religious you think you are, No matter all the things you do, no matter what you've done, no matter your ethnicity, your religious background, your heritage, none of it can cover the sin you have been involved in, you're involved in right now, or you will be involved in. Paul at this moment then brings the smack down. He throws down the gauntlet when he wrote these words, so offensive, but so needed. Verse 4, or do you show contempt, he writes, for the riches of God's kindness and tolerance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness should lead you towards repentance. So you rely on God's kindness and tolerance and patience to avoid what the rest of us are going through, Paul writes. Bad news. It should have led you to repentance, but so far it hasn't. Here again, those simple words, easily said, rarely reflected on. Kindness is the idea that God gives us benefits, existence, life, breath, Food, family, relationships. The next word is is tolerance. It comes from an old word named forbearance, to hold back. It was actually used when there was a truce. And what Paul is saying is God has decided to give a truce between him and humanity to give us time to connect with him if we would. Now patience goes farther. Here it's the idea of a powerful ruler who voluntarily withheld wrath on an enemy or punishment on a criminal. Really, patience is the duration of tolerance and kindness. Paul is saying to this community and to us, yes, God is kind and tolerant and patient, and all of this should lead you to know that no matter what you do, you still need God to move, to save, to change you. All of this should lead you to repentance. Now, it's interesting, you know, in church circles, the word repentance is thrown around a lot. It's like the word Christian. It's just sort of part of our Christianese, our vocabulary. But honestly, this morning, we need to get repentance because if if we don't get repentance, the whole book of Romans suddenly gets really mucky. This is what one Bible teacher wrote when Paul was speaking to this audience. The purpose, he writes, of God's kindness is not to excuse people of their sin, but actually to convict them of it. It should lead us to repentance. Repentance has the idea of changing your mind. Now, in the religious sense, it means moving from loving and embracing and accepting sin to rejecting it and moving a 180 towards God and asking forgiveness. Now, before any of you here or online zone out or get disconnected or distracted, remember, Paul is writing to a religious Jewish community. And the words that he's just chosen would hit home with this crowd very directly. See, it gets back to how, again, they viewed the world. We must remember, one wrote, that the Jews' assumption of superiority over non-Jews wasn't ego or or personal boasting. Out of the nations of the earth, God did choose them to know him. Surely the Jews reasoned, as God's chosen people then, they're immune from judgment. I mean, his tolerance and kindness will always cause God to look over our sin, they thought. But see, what Paul is saying is so radical 
and so powerful and so different. It would be like us at Crothers Creek finding out that everything we thought about the world and God and the Christian faith was misdirected and wrong. It would say, basically, you have to lose everything you've held so dear to actually meet the one you think you know. And then Paul says to this highly offended and already insulted crowd, God's wrath and judgment, which, by the way, you're under too, it's not only fair, it's completely right. But because of your stubbornness, verse 5, and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Stubbornness has the same idea of hardening. It's where we get our modern idea of arteries hardening. And I think we all know that as arteries harden, they lead to heart attack, which can lead to death. Paul is saying you trust in you, not God for salvation, and your heart gets hardened. You trust in you, you and, and what you do and what you look like, and you look down on the rest of the messed up world we live in and you think you're okay. This action reveals that you're about to have a spiritual heart attack. You presume on God's kindness and forbearance and patience, but really, he says, you're actually storing up wrath like an ever-growing bank account in the reverse. You are storing up God's judgment against you that will ripple into eternity. You're digging your own hole and you're doing it with a spade called religion. Paul, thinking at the end of time, then talks about what will happen when we all face Jesus himself. And I remind you this morning, no matter who you are, every single one of us will face him by ourselves, face to face, and give an account. He says, God will give to each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, immortality, he'll give eternal life. But to those who are self-seeking, who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for Jews and then non-Jews, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew and then for the non-Jew. Now, very important this morning, just time out, very important. When you see this passage and you read it, it seems to be saying one thing, be good, get to heaven, be bad, burn in hell, right? That's what it looks like. But what we need to stop and understand is Paul is writing a whole letter to a group of people. And if we cut this out by itself, we're going to end up doing the very thing Paul is writing against. Preaching that by ourselves we get in. This is what one of my favorite authors, Douglas Moo, wrote about this. Just thinking caps on it will help. What he's been talking about is the standard by which people are judged by God. The standard is works. People who do evil works will suffer. People who persist in doing good will gain eternal life. But in both cases, he's talking about the criteria of judgment, not the people who are actually doing the criteria. Remember, Paul is building a case. So let me skip ahead to show this to you. Paul is saying in chapter 2, Jews and Gentiles are available to salvation by doing good works. That's what he says here. Then in chapter 3, he says, the power of sin prevents all of us from doing good works. And in the middle of chapter 3, in verse 20, he says, therefore, no one can be saved by doing good works. And then from 3 all the way to 10, he says, that's why you need Jesus, because the standard's high and you can't meet it. So understand that verse 8 through 10 is not saying that there's a certain group of people who get in because they're good. Paul's building this case to show us that that's how it's done and we can't do it, so we need someone else to do it for us. Jesus. Well, if that wasn't enough for us and the crowd, Paul really brings home the hammer at this moment. It's very difficult. 
he actually smashes all the hope that he had as a child, what he was taught. He smashes the hope that's actually been grasped by all of us since post-Eden. It's a simple phrase. It's a scary phrase. It's a needed phrase. God does not show favoritism. God does not show favoritism. He will not show any different consideration to you because of who you are. Our intelligence, hear this this morning. Our our position, our many acts of kindness, our religiosity. I'm a church member. My family are Christians. I'm spiritual. I, I don't believe in organized religion, but I'm a good person. I gave up so much for the poor. None of it will move God. Wealth, power, position, race, color, nationality, heritage, philosophy, education, religion, irreligious, none of it will count. Jew, non-Jew, right-believing, wrong-believing. The measuring rod will be the same for all of us. Simply put, God will deal with all of us with faultless discrimination. Paul at this moment then moves into really for the kill. He brings home now this most needed and terrible uncomfortable truth. And he does it about talking about the law of God in two forms. Verse 12 reads like this. All who sin apart from the law will perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. Now, what he's saying is, look, Jews and non-Jews are not in the same place. He said, look, the Jewish community were chosen by God, have had a relationship with God. They were given the written word of God. They had epiphanies from God. They had prophets from God. And the Gentile world, they didn't have that. But we're made in the image of God, Paul would say. And in our consciences, we have God's law written on our hearts. And what Paul is about to say is, God's law is expressed in nature, and it's written specifically. And we're all violating it. See, this is where he gets it. He says, you know, the law has been written. The law is the first five books in the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, contained in the Ten Commandments, summarized. And the question that Paul is addressing is, well, if I obey that, can't that just make me okay with God? And verse 13 shows you why it can't. For it is not those who hear the law that are righteous in God's sight, but those who obey the law who are declared righteous. In other words, you have to keep the law perfectly. You can never break any of them, never steal, never lie, never commit adultery, never covet, never break the Sabbath, never bow down to anything else but God. And if you do, you break one, you break them all. See, one of God's goals in giving the law is to actually show us our need for Jesus. Only after we meet the one who stands in the gap can we actually obey the law as tokens of love, not as duty. Paul says in verse 14, Even the non-Jews who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law. They are a law for themselves, even though they don't have the written law. Since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences bear witness and their thoughts now accusing or even defending them. So here's the summary of Paul. He wants to show Jews and non-Jews that they're sinful and in need of the gospel. Whether it's innate or written, none of it can protect any of us from God's wrath. It will only expose us and only condemn us in the end. It was Blaise Pascal who wrote, The law demands what it cannot give. And grace gives all it demands. Let me say that again. The law demands what it never can give, but grace gives all it demands. The gospel provides the only way back to God. Nothing else or nobody else. Why? Because we don't have the ability to follow our own consciousness, let alone follow the written will of God. Verse 16, not so cryptic. 
This will take place on the day when my God will judge all people's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. Now we're going to stop there, but let me just take a note there for a moment. Secrets. Our culture is full of them. History is full of them. We think that we can take things to the grave. You're wrong. There is a day coming that every human being that has ever lived or will live will actually have their whole life talked about. There is no such thing as hiddenness with our God. And then Paul ends there. Now the question we ask here in happy passages and more difficult ones is, okay, Lord, what are you truly trying to say to the world and what are you trying to say to us particularly at this moment? Let me spend a few moments here and and please hear this. For you who, again, as we always say, who are not Christians or you're Christians in name only, I say the same thing to you I said last week. God at this moment has set up this conversation for you. This is good news and bad news for a reason. God wants you to know how much trouble you're actually in. You'll never need a Savior until you know you need saving. And as Paul has said and will say, God's abandonment is not the same as rejection. It's the first step in you seeing salvation. You, by the way, right now are under God's wrath. And if you continue to trust in who you are or what you do, you're still under God's wrath and always will be, just like me, because we've all violated God's law in nature and His given law. The problem is, with most of you, you actually think that you're not, a re- you're not really a helpless sinner who needs rescuing. You just think you're a decent person who needs a good example like Oprah. Seriously. We just think as a culture, I need to find someone who's nice, who will show me to do good things. And she's an amazing example of that. But C.S. Lewis wrote so many years ago, Indeed, the safest road to hell is a gradual one. A gentle slope, soft underfoot, without signposts. But God at this moment, through his scriptures, through Paul, is raising a a huge signpost. Stop, heaven's declaring. Stop, you're in trouble. You need saving. You need the gospel. Everything you trust in will not take care of the problems of sin, death, rebellion, brokenness, separation. It's like that movie where the guy's crying out, God, God, why won't you give me a sign? You know what movie I'm talking about? What is it called? Not Evan Almighty, the other one. Bruce Almighty. God, why don't you talk to me? And then what happens? The truck drives up and every sign under humanity is right there. God is coming to you at this moment and saying, listen, what this is saying is you. Paul, of course, trying to get his Jewish audience to respond to the gospel, required them to get to their senses, but they were convinced their religion took care of the problem. Well, it's the same for you. Your intelligence or position or your thoughts or ideas that I am spiritual or I am good or none of it's going to move God. Your wealth or your power or your position or race or color, nationality, heritage, philosophy, education, your religious ideals will count for nothing when you face God. Whether you're a Jew or you're not a Jew, whether you're right-believing or wrong-believing, the measuring rod will be the same. You will appear before the living God and you will be like those smokestacks who looks okay and then you will crumble because there's nothing inside. And even more deadly, if you call yourself a Christian this morning, but you have never personally repented over your sin, or you prayed a prayer so many years ago, but there is no life change in you, you have not met the author of life. 
Do not, hear this this morning, do not presume on grace until you accept it through repentance. Do not presume on God's mercy without the act of repentance. What does Scripture teach us? His kindness, His tolerance, and patience are given to us for a space so we can repent and change our minds and embrace the Lord Jesus. The question I ask you this morning, without any arrogance, without any tone of condemnation, because I'm in the same boat and had to go through the same thing, is this. Will you continue to trust in what you do and who you are for this life and in the life to come? Or will you realize that in the end, it just will not count? The greatest thing for Paul is he thought he was right. And he beat up and killed Christians because he thought he was right. And then Jesus appeared to him in a vision and said, you're wrong. And Paul at that moment could have raised the middle finger and said, no, I'm right and you're wrong. And he didn't. He got on his knees and said, you're right. What would you say to me? The greatest battle for your soul, the greatest battle facing our neighbors and our friends is not just overt sin, it's blindness to their need of hope. Seeker, what will you do this morning with the gospel? That is the question that God gives you. Many of you are saying, but John, I am a follower. I'm the real deal. I don't trust in myself. I do trust in Jesus, and I I realize that all I do for him is is love, not, not duty. So what would God say to me? Well, let me give you a few last thoughts as we end. As I struggled with this passage this week, realizing again how offensive it is to our culture and struggling, you know, it's like bad medicine sometimes. It's Buckley's for Christians a little bit. (laughs) I said, you know, Lord, what would you say to our community? Well, this is what I came up with. I think we should be more thankful. Thankful that God chose us. Thankful that God saved us. Thankful that God loves us. Thankful that he actually freed us from our own works. Freed us from the burden of trying to prove or buy his love by by what we do. See, when we see the gravity of our sin, thankfulness becomes stronger and stronger and stronger. The less sinful you think you are, the less thankful you will become. It's not about sitting in guilt and saying I'm a worm and beating myself up. But the more as a Christian... You choose to reflect on hell and wrath and sin and deception. And by the way, the list goes on. The more astonished you will become about the love of God. And what is the fruit of a thankful, loving heart? Here it is. It it prevents us from becoming proud. It prevents us from becoming arrogant and ruthless and political and, and uncaring. See, when you actually realize what you and I have been saved from, we will tend to have much more mercy on people and be much less judgmental. One person writing on the Christian community said, Unfortunately, such judgmental thinking is not confined to the damned. It's a favorite indoor sport of many Christians. It is a sin, he writes, that I am constantly assailed with and, and I even give in to. However, I am never more miserable than when I am judging another person. There is nothing more destructive to the spread of the good news of Jesus than this. It is a fact that when you have a censorous, self-righteous spirit, others will sense it and you don't even have to say a word. It's the set of your jaw, the moisture in your eye. It's when your countenance gets flushed. It's the tone of your voice that will give you away. And you think you're bringing life. and You're actually bringing death. I asked you a question as your pastor this morning. Are you a self-righteous, censorous Christian? Do you think that God likes you more or is on your side because of who you are or what you believe? 
Do you pray, oh, thank God I'm not like that person. Oh, thank God I don't go to that church. Oh, oh God, thank you that I, so, I know so much more than those other poor semi-Christians over there. When you do that, you think you're bringing life because you think you're speaking capital T truth. You're actually bringing death. Here's what you need to ask God to do this morning. Say no more, God. Ask, ask God to break this of you. Why? Because the God that saved you rejects this attitude. And by the way, here's a candid thought this morning. If you were held to the standard you're holding other Christians, you'd probably be on your way to hell right now. I think all of us at Crothers genuinely want to have a vibrant, Bible-believing, Acts 2-like church. I was on Twitter this week and reading the pastor, uh, a Twitter from Greg Rochelle from Life Church, and I love how he summarized Acts 2. He says, Acts 2, that church was, uh, preachly, uh, was preaching boldly, loving radically, serving sacrificially, giving extravagantly. He said, that is the summary of Acts 2 in a sentence. But as I read it, I said, well, this is only going to happen, though. Hear me, please. This definition will only happen when a community is really thankful. Thankful people preach boldly because they're not ashamed. Thankful people love and forgive because they know they've been forgiven. Uh, Thankful people serve so much because they know they've been served. And thankful people give way beyond cultural norms. Why? Because they've been given so much. Now, if this is not you, then you have a thankful problem. If you don't preach boldly, you have a thankful problem. If you are a person who comes here, but you don't love radically others, even those who hurt you, you have a thankful problem because you don't actually know what you've been saved from. If you don't give up serious time for the kingdom of God, you have a thankful problem because you don't know how much you've been served. And here's a big one for Crothers. If you are not giving extravagantly of your money and of your time, and your resources to the things that last in eternity. You have a thankful problem because you don't really believe that you were in so much trouble. People that get it suddenly become revolutionized. I can't preach this into you. I can't make you become this. We can't program it. It's a supernatural thing. But when you begin to go, oh my goodness, he actually saved me, it all changes. You don't give a rip anymore about so much that you care about right now. This is what God teaches us out of Romans 2 as believers. I end with these words. Oh, good Christian, hear the good news once again proclaimed for 2,000 years. When Jesus said it was finished, it actually was finished. Don't waste your life trying to make God like you. He loves you through Jesus. Don't waste your life looking down at other Christians. You'll only waste your whole life, and when you face Jesus, most of the paint job is going to disappear, and you're going to regret it. Spend your life seeking first Jesus' kingdom and his righteousness. God gave you freedom, so live in that freedom. Be thankful. Be thankful. Be generous. Be sacrificial. Be loving. Who cares what other people are saying? Who cares whether you agree with the church or not? This is about Jesus and his work in you. Be thankful. And if you're not, pray a simple prayer. God, make me so thankful people will not recognize me within one month. God comes to us this morning and says, I have set you free from the duty of you. The gospel is that Jesus took our place. 
And it brings great freedom. The question that is always being asked by the Spirit of God to us, to you as seekers, will you embrace the gift? And we who have embraced the gift, he asks us, will you let it, as Alan was singing today, fan into flame so all the stuff that we're into that doesn't matter goes away and we become a community that is thankful that we're no longer under wrath, that we've been set free. What will you do with what God says to you today? That is the question you need to wrestle with far beyond Timmy's or Swishele today because it's significant, because it matters to me, it matters to you, it matters to your family, and it matters to the future of this church. God, we pray right now, simply again, as a community. Your word is so helpful, so comforting, so loving, so sharp, so difficult all at once. But as a community right now, we, we just again... Man, a lot of us who are Christians want to thank you. Thank you that you decided that we, <laughs> that we didn't have to spend our life trying to prove our love to you because we would fail. Thank you for setting us free. Thank you for showing us wrath so we got saved. It's so countercultural but so real. And Lord, here's our simple prayers again as we prepare to respond. First thing, Lord, is um, for us among us who have not met you yet, who deeply are wrestling with you, Lord, just overcome them with your love and bring them to life. To others, Lord, who have become censorous and judgmental and angry, my genuine prayer, because it can happen to all of us, is that you would give them a fresh, genuine vision of how much they've been saved and how much you love them. It's the only thing. It's the only thing that can change a bitter Christian. And last prayer, God, is I pray that this church would be thankful And out of that thankfulness would flow the characteristics of preaching without shame, giving extravagantly, serving deeply. I mean, these are, this is what you want of us. This is the the call. Do it in our church, Lord, because we can't invent it. We ask this in Jesus' name, who is the head of this church always. Amen. Thanks for being with us today. If you want to know more about our church or give financially, go to our website at www.crotherscreek.ca.